0: Hey, good morning, everybody. Hello. You guys are very happy to see each other, it seems. I'm happy to see you too. I'm glad you're here. My name is Nate Wagner. I'm one of the pastors here at Portico Church Arlington. It's really good to see you guys. Hope you're having a good weekend. Got a few announcements for you before we get into our text in Esther today. Um, The first is on Thursday, this coming Thursday, which is May 26th, at 6.30, we are doing Abide. And so this is just a space to come and pray, to receive, and to give prayer. And so I'd encourage you to come to that, um, just pop in. It's very informal, unstructured, so it's just basically a space to be able to pray. Next is June 5th, we have a member gathering. So right after the church service, basically right after the church service, we'll give you like five minutes to use the bathroom and that kind of thing, we're going to do kind of like an informational portion of the member gathering. Um, where we're just going to update you on the ministries of the church and kind of set kind of a little bit of the direction for the future for the rest of the year, and then we're also going to follow that with just some time of fellowship and light refreshments. So please join us for that. Um, and the timing of that is going to lead me to my next announcement: is that on June fifth we are going to one service at ten a.m. And so yes, good, yes. Um, Yeah, another extra hour of sleep, or maybe, I don't know. Um, Yeah, I know. Yeah, well, me too. But we're really excited about this. We, we think it's a good move for the church. We have space for everyone as we've kind of settled in here. And it's just so sweet to be worshiping with everybody at the same time. You're going to be able to get to know people maybe that you're not that familiar with um, who are members of this church, who are attenders of this church. And we're just going to see kind of how God has blessed us as a church body in a more fuller picture when we're all together. So I'm really excited about that, and I look forward to it. Um, And then finally, if you're new, welcome. Um, We just ask that you'd swing by the connect desk on your way out um, and get to know the hospitality team. They can help you get connected to the church. Um, And the main way you can do that is just by filling out one of the connect cards. And so you can do that at the desk. There's also a QR code or a physical card in the pews in front of you. So that is all the announcements I've got for you guys. We are continuing in Esther and I haven't been up here for a couple weeks, and a lot's happened. So it's gotten serious very quickly. Um, And I'm just really grateful to both Johnny, but then also to Pat um, and our elder team. Um, It's really important that you guys, as the church body, hear from all the elders um, and that they preach. They're not going to do it, like, every week, right? But it's important because it shows you that the... um, the gifting and the calling that God has put on their hearts for this church, it comes out in their preaching. Um, And that's a really important thing to access and to um, take part in. So I'm really thankful that um, Pat labored in that way. And you'll see um, Andrew and Chris keep it up here as well in the coming months. Um, So I just wanted to say that and thank them for that. So we are picking up in Esther, kind of in the in-between of these two banquets, So if you remember, going all the way back to the beginning, the Jews are kind of in exile, and the Persian Empire is pretty ruthless, but also pretty unpredictable. And so Esther becomes queen of Persia. Esther is a Jew, but nobody knows that she's a Jew, except for Mordecai. And now she's queen of Persia. She is like the second most powerful and important person in the world. And so all of a sudden, you see, like, even though the Jews are in exile, there's a Jew who is the queen. And so she is kind of trying to navigate that, but Mordecai tells her, hey, don't tell anybody. And so she's doing it kind of covertly, um, because she's afraid of what will happen if they find out that she's a Jew. And you see this kind of playing out with Mordecai and Haman set against each other. And it's like a generational pettiness that gets kind of like blown up into basically an order for genocide. Because Mordecai doesn't bow to Haman. And so Haman uses his power to establish an edict that would annihilate all of the Jews. And so their existence as a people is in jeopardy. So Mordecai goes to Esther and he says, hey, you have to do something. Now is the time. We have one shot here. And even though, yes, we know that God will deliver, this seems like the best shot that we have right now. And so he asks Esther to, risk, Esther to risk her life, to expose herself to the king, and to essentially try to plead for the lives of all the Jews. And so she sets up these banquets. And as Pat explained yesterday, or last week, the banquets are really similar except for in their invitations. And Esther is kind of starting to very adeptly kind of drive a wedge between Haman and the king. And she does this by kind of like elevating Haman and then maybe even planting a seed of like, hmm, I might be interested in Haman, King Ahasuerus. I might have a romantic interest in him. She's just planting these seeds of doubt and seeing what will happen. And so this we're picking up is at the start of this second banquet. And if you remember, Mordecai goes back to his house and he's like, or no, sorry, Haman goes back to his house and he's like, you know, starting to get worried because he accidentally tells the king to honor Mordecai. And so he's telling his wife and his people this, and his wife Suresh says, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. All right, so let's pick it up from there. We're in chapter 6 at the very end, verse 14, and then we're going to go through 7 and 8 this morning. And I'm going to say, like, I'm going to read this in one chunk. It's a lot, probably more than you're accustomed to kind of, like, listening in one sitting. Um, And so I just challenge you to kind of, like, try to pay attention. I'll take pauses and explain some very crucial things along the way. But I just want to acknowledge that we don't do this in our culture very often. We don't just hear somebody reading in a big chunk like this. So, Um, It might be a challenge, but I think it's one that we can handle. So follow along with me, verse 14 of chapter 6 and following. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther, and on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, "'What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you.' And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish, and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated." If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Queen Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. So really quick before we get into chapter 8, a couple things to notice. Notice how Esther reverses what Haman had done. So remember how Haman was really coy with the king about the people that Worship or didn't follow the laws, followed their own laws that were spread out through all the kingdom and that it would just be better if we dealt with them and killed them? Well, Esther kind of does the same thing. She says in a very generic way, my people, the king doesn't know who her people are, my people have been sold and they're going to be destroyed. Somebody has done this in your kingdom, my people, your queen. And the king is so dense and like, Just doesn't even realize that it's his own order that she's talking about. But she doesn't, she knows that, but she doesn't say, hey, it's your fault, even though it is, because she knows she can't do that. The king can never admit that he was wrong. And so she gives him this other way. Haman becomes the scapegoat. It's like, yeah, Haman tricked you. It's Haman who's done all this, he's the one. And the king goes for it. And so he is furious but he's furious because of the predicament he's in. So he is publicly on record with saying like I'll give you whatever you want queen and this is my queen. And now she reveals that she's a Jew and his own order has de- basically determined her destruction. And if he undoes that he looks weak. If he goes through and kills her it's like it just throws the whole empire into turmoil. And so he's furious that he's in this predicament. It's his own foolishness, but of course we know King Azurus at this point. Do you think he's going to take credit for that or take the blame for that, take responsibility? No. So Haman becomes the scapegoat. And you see Haman fall before Mordecai, just as his wife predicted, right away. Just that quick. This happens so quickly. The rest of this story is taking place over years. This flips on Haman in one meal so quickly. Okay, let's pick it up in in chapter 8. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king. For Esther had told what he was to her, and the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, "'If it please the king, "'and if I have found favor in his sight, "'and if the thing seems right before the king,' And I am pleasing in his eyes. Let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews but you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps, the governors, and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script, in their language. And he wrote in the name of King Azarus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews, who were in every city, to gather and to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. So notice there's symmetry between these orders. It's the exact language that was used in Haman's order, and it's starting to be undone. There's a symmetry that's taking place here that's important. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command. And the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city where the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Please pray with me. Hmm. Heavenly Father, um, what a story. So much happened so quickly. And Lord, we see your care and your provision for your people in their moment of greatest need. Despite their rebellion against you, despite everything that they deserved, you are merciful. And Lord, you are also just. And we see a picture of your justice here in this story. And so I ask that this morning here you would, you would make yourself real to us. That you would give us a sense of our need for your intervention in this world. I' we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so there's a lot in this passage. And I want to try and boil it down and make it simple. Not that it is simple, but we just can't address everything. So here's something that I think the author is doing and is showing us what is most important. And that is, it's a theme. It's justice. And so we're going to look at this this passage In three kind of different points. First is the need for justice. We see a need for justice. Second is the beauty of justice. And then finally, the source of justice. Before we start moving into those points, though, um, something that struck me as I was reading this passage um, and just kind of as a theme of my own walk with God is. Sometimes it just is hard to really believe that I need Jesus. Like, I know that I should need Jesus. And I know that that is like a Christian thing to say. But if I'm honest, I feel like "Hmm, I'm pretty comfortable. Like, if I didn't have Jesus, would things be that much different? I don't know. Sometimes I question that. And I think that's something that we all struggle with, especially in our culture, especially in our area, especially kind of just our population as a church body, we have a lot of stuff. We're blessed. We are safe. We're insulated. And even when things disturb us and make us uncomfortable, we can numb. We can distract. We can entertain ourselves into kind of this clouded, milquetoast life. It's like, is Jesus a part of that? And so something in this story disrupts that. And it's not just this story, but it's what this story is portraying. It's portraying a world where there's real injustice. It's portraying a world that is topsy-turvy, that is ruled by people like King Ahasuerus, where there's this epic battle taking place. And it shows us that we really do need Jesus. And so, as we think about and talk about justice this morning, that's going to be what I want you to feel. I want you to feel and remember and refresh yourself with your need for Jesus. So, first, we're going to look at the need for justice. So, Haman is centered in the first part of this little passage that we're looking at today. And Haman has been painted as the real villain of this story. He's like, just incredibly evil. He's the bad guy. Like if you go to a melodrama, he's the person that you boo at in the stands. And so Haman is kind of an embodiment of human wickedness. He's embodying, remember, the agagite kind of um, spirit of waging war against the seed of promise, against the people of God. And he's inherited that And so you see Haman trying to execute his plan to destroy and to basically create a mass murder. Why? Because his pride was affronted. I mean, think about that for a minute. How evil it is for someone, just because a person didn't bow, to say, I'm going to kill you and the millions of people who are like you. It's horrific. It's unvarnished evil, and we're seeing it face to face. Queen Esther is seeing it face to face. She is making herself vulnerable to it, right? She is going into this banquet knowing that she's going to out herself as a Jew, placing herself under the condemnation of that edict because she doesn't want this injustice to stand. And this is the shot that she's taking to correct it. So in this, you see that without justice, without kind of a judgment that this is wrong and it needs to be righted, this is evil and it needs to be condemned, death and destruction reign. They go unchecked. And maybe 15 years ago, our culture would have had a hard time with that. We were like very much kind of leaning into like, don't judge me, live and let live. But I think now we're starting to kind of swing into the other direction. Like, yeah, we understand justice. We want justice. Because we've seen what happens when injustices go unchecked, when they go unjudged, when they go uncondemned, and it's death and destruction. Terrific. horrific. We really do need justice. And Esther puts... Puts pressure on the king by showing him, right? Remember, this king is not exactly like the standard of moral excellence. Like, he is kind of a scumbag. But she puts pressure on him by showing him this is an, unjust, an injustice, and if you don't do something about it, your kingdom is at risk because my people will be destroyed. Who's next? Somebody who would do this, something this wicked to sell me to destruction? The next people group, who is it? And so Esther does a wonderful job of even showing this wicked king the need for justice, the need for him to act on behalf of justice. And he doesn't really know what he's doing, but he still does it. He says, yes, tell me who that is, and I'll deal with it. And so she reveals Haman as the one, which must have very much surprised the king. He didn't see that coming. But in Haman, and in this kind of reversal, this portrayal of him being hanged on on his own device that he devised to destroy Mordecai, we get a picture of the beauty of justice. Did you guys want to laugh? Did you smile? You're supposed to. When you see someone that wicked destroyed by their own means, it's very pleasing to us. It resonates with our longing for justice. And it shows you kind of God's justice, the justice of God being worked into the fabric of this world that you don't even, you can not believe in God at all, and you still like that symmetry. You still like the punishment fitting the crime. You still like a people, an innocent people, not being destroyed. There's a beauty. There's something that resonates in our souls that loves the perfect symmetry of true, honest justice. And so you see this with Haman being hanged on his own device of destruction, and you also see this with the counter-edict, as I kind of drew attention to. It's exactly the same language, but it's just now empowering the Jews. And so this is super confusing because it's like, okay, you can't undo the first edict, so he just gives the second edict, basically saying, like, civil war, guys. But here's how he knew, and Mordecai knew, who actually wrote the edict, here's how he knew that it would be received by the vast majority of people in the Persian Empire. They would have seen through these most recent words of the king, which way the wind was blowing. So the first edict from the king said, destroy all the Jews on this day. So, okay, like, let's get ready to do that. The second edict is, no, the Jews can actually defend themselves. So prepare to defend yourselves on that day. And anybody who attacks you, you can kill and plunder them. And so there's language in there where it's like, if you receive this, you're like, okay, now, favor is with the Jews. And so it was going to, for the vast majority, as we'll see, it was going to pacify the land and remove the threat against the Jews. And any remaining threat, the Jews wouldn't only be empowered themselves, likely they would have had that government, that regional local authority come to their aid because they're trying to win favor of the king too. And so in the counteredict, you see justice coming as well. And so it's not just the symbolic initial act but it's dealing with the consequences of Haman, of Haman's wickedness. So something within all of us loves to see this. We love to see wrongs put to right. And here's a great way to understand justice and judgment, especially when you think of it as coming from God. It's like cleaning your house, right? It's like the act of doing a deep clean in the spring where it's like all of this filth and accumulation and dirt and debris and grime has accumulated. And so justice is putting that to right, cleaning it, establishing it how you want it, making it beautiful again. And this is how God works in his creation. He has created everything good. But sin has entered the world and has started to undo that. And so his justice, his judgment, is cleaning that. It's putting it back into order. It's showing us that we need this in our world. We need this in our lives. And so we are meant to read this and to look at Haman as he's hanging. And I will say, hanging isn't like a Wild West hanging. He's not dangling from a noose. He's impaled on a stake, 75 feet up in the air. This is public. It's a public demonstration of justice. And as we look at Haman as he's hanging, it creates a problem. It creates a problem for us. Because what Haman embodies is human nature, We can look and kind of get excited because real good has been done, real justice has been done, but then it foreshadows something. It tells of a principle that is working by the power of God that no wrong will go unrighted, that no evil will go unpunished, and the punishment always fits the crime. And so as we look at Haman, as we look at him hanging We start to wonder, okay, who's in control of this? It's that same question. It's like, wow, if Haman can hang, I can hang. So who is in control of this? Who is the source of of justice in Esther? And this is where it gets uneasy for us. Because the source of justice is the king. And he's flippant. He's fickle. He goes one way and then the other. Right? He's easily influenced. He's drinking a lot and making decisions as he does that. But is he really the source of justice? Who's he listening to? He's listening first to Queen Esther. Queen Esther, who's interceding for her people, who is trying to influence the king to get him to do something that is good. And it's Mordecai. Mordecai, the righteous one. The one who has been lifted up and exalted. Who is in control? So this is where we see this story pointing to a larger story. And this is really how Esther functions in the Bible. If you were wondering that, that's a good question to ask. But this is how Esther functions in the Bible. Is This is how the world works. We don't get always a very explicit saying, like, this is God working justice in this situation. No, it just happens. And so Esther helps us to interpret our own stories, our own lives. The story of Esther, the story of justice working throughout Persia, throughout a world of exile and injustice, it's the same story that governs our existence. It speaks to us universal truths that we can hold to, that we can trust, that we can believe in. Helps us to understand who God is and how He's working in this world with clarity and with hope. Even if we don't understand all the all the different ways that that's working out, we can hold to this. Through Esther, we are reminded that we need justice. This wasn't just local. This wasn't like a one time event for the people of God needing justice. We need justice. Do you believe that? A couple of weeks ago, a couple different things happened that reminded me about that. And it is really to do with our own place and position in exile. The people of God here in the United States, we are in exile. We're in a land that allowed and put into its legislative code, chattel slavery, selling another people to work as slaves, ripping families apart, destroying what God created, tarnishing the image of God. Okay, well, we dealt with that. Yeah, like Haman was dealt with. But the impact of it, the consequences of it, continue on so that you have... African-Americans who can't even go shopping without being shot just because the color of their skin, because somebody hates them, because somebody's pride is so threatened by their mere existence. We need justice. The other thing that happened was um, the rumors and the leaks of Roe Wade being potentially undone and reversed. Um, And responses to this, I think, are mixed. They're complex. One side of us wants to rejoice because it means innocent lives, lives of the unborn, will be spared. That's a good thing. But part of us wants to lament and cry out that this would happen. That we've allowed, that we've been in a country that has put that and allowed that in our legal code for so long. That we live in a country where that's even necessary. That we live in a country where that law has been teaching us that that's okay. We lament. Yeah, we want to celebrate and we lament. And we also have to know that just like Haman, this would be a symbolic victory that would create the messiness of undoing injustice. And as God's people, we have to be ready to do that. We have to be ready to enter in and to undo that for centuries. It's going to take centuries to undo that. We have to hope that that will be undone. We need justice. But justice is beautiful. Because we see God through his people, through his providence, we see him teaching us over and over again patiently about what justice is. He hasn't let go of us completely. He hasn't lifted his hand from us as his people, but then from this entire nation. He still is showing us through common grace what's good and what's evil. And the more we can see the beauty of his justice, the more we see our need for it. And then finally, we understand that Jesus is the source of justice. So just as I told you to look at Haman hanging, now look to the cross of Christ. Jesus' cross offers a full and final solution to the problem of Haman hanging, to the problem of our sinful nature, to the reality that Haman doesn't just represent the really wicked people out there, but he actually represents our human nature, every one of us. And so that demonstration, public demonstration of justice, condemns us even as we look to it. And it shows us our future apart from some kind of intervention. So as we look to the cross of Christ, we see the solution to that because perfect justice is executed on Jesus. Why? How can that be? It's because God planned fully to never stop being just. He never ceases to be just, but he also never ceases to be merciful. And even in the punishment and the execution of Haman, you see his mercy to his people. But in the cross of Christ, you see mercy and justice perfectly. It's what Haman just whispers. You see powerfully in the cross of Christ. And you, there's a word that comes to us from beyond his cross. Haman stays dead. Jesus shows us the resurrection life. He shows us that there is a new life, that there's eternal life. And in faith, as we trust Jesus, we receive a new nature that corresponds with that life. It corresponds with eternity. And we walk by faith in that. So look to the cross of Christ. When you deeply feel the need for justice in this world, Let the answer to that need be Jesus' cross. Let it remind you of the hope that you have in him. That even though all human efforts might fail, but the cross of Christ will never fail. Look to the resurrection. Know that God is not done working, and he continues to work, and Jesus is coming again to fully put all things to right. When you feel your own need for justice, when you understand that you have sinned personally, that you are rebelling against God, that you have created idols with the very creation that God has given you, you can look to the cross of Christ and you don't need to hide. You don't need to scheme you can come to him, you can receive forgiveness, you can receive reconciliation, you can receive redemption. And that happens perfectly. It happens always. So as you are aware of your own sin, don't try and fix it and then come to Jesus. You can't. That's as futile as King Ahasuerus in his own strength, restoring order to his kingdom. It can't happen. But instead, look and remember that Jesus is the one who is the source of that justice. And it's justice that comes to you in his mercy. Here's a passage that we're going to close with, Romans 3, 23 through 26. It'll be up there on the screen. And this just perfectly, I think, encapsulates this whole idea. This As we look to the cross of Christ... We understand more and more our need for Jesus. Verse 23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as, prop- as a propitiation, that is, a satisfaction of his righteous wrath against sin, his anger. Remember how the king, King Ahasuerus, was angry? <laughs> Even at that injustice, somebody as wicked as King Ahasuerus is angry at injustice. And then when he puts it to right, he's satisfied. He's no longer angry. Well, even more so with God, that Jesus is the propitiation by his blood. His wrath is fully satisfied to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is God's word. It's God's promise to you. And the grass may wither and the flower fade, but God's word endures forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are just And that when you are merciful to us, you don't stop being just. You don't sweep sin under the rug. You don't look the other way. You don't pretend. But you destroy it. You crucify it to the cross of your Son. And so, Lord, I ask that all of us, that we would remember our need. And as we remember our need, you restore us again to new life, that you give us a new experience of our eternal nature that you have poured out on us through your Spirit and by your Son. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.